Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, and it reads, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hands, by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you said God had more. You said, trust God. You said, live by limitless faith. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. We're going to have some fun today. Look at your neighbor and say, take a second look. Take a second look. Take a I want to preach from the thought, from the idea today. Take a second look. Father God, we're grateful, we're thankful that, God, we are welcomed into these holy moments when you hung on that cross and gave up your spirit. It said that the veil was rent from top to bottom, giving us access into the most holy of holies. And we are maximizing on that privilege this morning, stepping into your presence where your peace is, where your joy is, where your purpose is, where your healing is, where your freedom is. All that we stand in need of is available to us in this moment. So Father God, we say, have your way move in our lives like only you can. And we will be ever so careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Come on, somebody shout amen. And amen. Y'all, winter is a coming. It's not here. It's not here. Cold is here. But winter is not yet here. Winter officially begins on December 21st. We have approximately two weeks left of freedom. And then winter, uh, winter is here. I, I have a love-hate relationship with winter. I, I love winter and I hate winter. I enjoy winter and I despise winter. I love winter because winter is the best fashion months of the year. Are any of my shoppers in the room, any, any... I, I am not a, a fashionista. I'm not a big fashion guy. I'm a big plagiarizer. I'll see somebody else wear it, and then I'll just copy it. Where did you get that from? Where do you shop? And you can look fashionable without being fashionable. You just have to have some fashionable friends and just do what they do. Just make sure not to do it on the same day that they do it, because it's a little bit awkward when they show up and you show up, and it was great minds that think alike. But the best best fashion is in the winter, hands down. Nobody 
got excited about putting on a t-shirt. Nobody said, I've been saving this t-shirt for three months, for four months. I can't wait to the day I get to wear my t-shirt. Nobody said, wait till you see my cargo shorts. These are the craziest, sickest cargo shorts you have ever seen in your life. But people prepare for winter. There's just something about throwing on a sweater, throwing on a sports coat, throwing on some corduroy. You just can't throw corduroy on in July. It just just doesn't work. You you will go meet your maker if you throw corduroy on in July. Winter winter is when fashion is fashion. I I I I'm, I, I promise you, I'm not too much into shopping. My wife would get up here and tell you that I lie, but I plan for winter all year long. The best time to plan for winter is actually in the summer because everything you would wear in the winter is on sale in the summer. You, you can get something 40% off if you know where to look and you know how to look in the winter. And I'll, I'll buy not the sweater I have on right now, even though it is. I bought this in July. And, and I'm not going to lie to y'all. I couldn't wait to put this sweater on. I, I, I bought it in July. I got 40% off. And I said, winter's coming. And when winter comes, I'm going to throw my sweater on. And I'm, 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 okay, I'm feeling myself, guys. I'm not even going to lie to you. I got to preach the word, but I'm feeling myself. And, and July came and then August came and September came. And when September comes, you can be tempted to pull out your winter clothes because it's like, it's, it's getting cool, but don't let Maryland fool you. It will cook you on an October Tuesday. And you, 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 somebody say, don't be early, don't be early, don't be early. And you got to wait for the right moment. The days start to get a little bit shorter and you're like, it's coming, it's coming, but not quite yet. The leaves start to change colors and you begin to feel the anticipation. It's coming, it's coming, but not quite yet. Then you have that faithful morning. When you open your window and there's frost on the grass, somebody say it's time. I love winter. I love winter. I love winter. I love winter, especially because you just get to put layers on and wear all your sweaters and cardigans and corduroys. I, I hate winter. I despise winter. I I can't stand winter. I blame my parents. My parents are from the Caribbean. I don't know if this is scientific, but I got Caribbean blood, and I don't think Caribbean blood was made for cold. So even though I like to dress in the winter, I don't like to be outside in the winter because the cold is not of God. I know we have this biblical picture that hell is hot and this lake of fire, but in my mind, hell is cold. It's kind of like Antarctica because there can't be anything worse than freezing. Not to mention a Caribbean blood that just made me hate the cold. But I had an experience in 2010 that solidified my hate for winter deep, deep down in my soul. If you were anywhere close to Maryland in 2010, you remember Snowmageddon. They said it was the snow of a lifetime. We had two blizzards back to back over five feet of snow in a five-day period. The devil is busy. 
I remember that fateful snowmageddon. I was working for my dad's company, driving five hours a day, and I actually got caught in that snow the evening driving home as it began to come down. If you remember that season, if you were caught that Tuesday night driving when the snow became down, maybe your life was like my life for a 30-minute commute turned into three and a half hours. It was literally going from street to street to street to figure out which one is not blocked off by people that are skidding, that have abandoned their car and walked home and all this other good stuff for three hours. I, I was literally 20 minutes from my house the entire time. But it took me three hours to find one street that was clear enough to get up to where I lived. After three hours of driving, there was one hill that was standing between me and home. Now, I didn't have a four-wheel drive, but I could drive. I had rear world. I had, had enough tread on my tire to make it up this hill in Jesus' name. I actually was a good driver. I know you don't actually like slam on the gas, but you got to get a little bit of momentum before you hit that hill because if you don't have any momentum and you hit the gas halfway up that hill, your car is going to begin to tilt. The only problem was there was about 10 cars in front of me. And it was like watching one of those obstacle course shows where each person tries to go over and, and not fall into the water. And I'm watching the first car slide halfway up and slide halfway down and turn around and leave. And then the second car slides halfway up and halfway down and turns around and leaves. And car after car after car gives up and turns back finally get to the hill. There's nobody in front of me and everybody in front of me had already turned around. Nobody had made it up this hill. And, and you know, there, there's some stuff that's skill. There's some stuff that's determination. And then there's some stuff that is just straight ignorance. I looked at the hill in front of me that nobody had been able to traverse. And I thought about the three hours behind me. And I said, I don't know what I have to do to get this car up this hill. If I have to get out, push with one hand and put my foot on the gas with the other hand, I will do it. But nothing is going to cause me to turn back to the three hours of hell I just went through to get to this. How bad do you have to worry to get to the point where turning back to what God rescued you from? is more appealing than overcoming the current barrier in front of you. How bad does it have to get that the bondage behind you looks appealing compared to the trial in front of you? We find in Exodus chapter 16, Israel praying this prayer, God, take us back to slavery. That's a crazy prayer. That's a... What's wrong with you people? You literally were crying out to God years ago, deliver us. You remember Mariah Carey, Prince of Egypt, one of the greatest songs ever. <laughs> they were crying out to God, get us out of this situation just years ago. And now they are praying, God, take us back to the situation that we had previously prayed that you would rescue us from. Now, if you ask them, they wouldn't say that they were praying for bondage again. 
They were saying, no, 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 we're praying for the meat that we used to eat when we were in Egypt. We were praying for the full pots of food that we used to have back when we were in Egypt. Here's the problem. Current trials will cause amnesia of past history. The current problems in our life will make us romanticize seasons that God had taken us out of. And even though we were miserable there, crying out to God there, hoping that he would rescue us there because we don't like where we are right now, there looks a whole lot better than there actually was. There was no meat, Israel. There was no pots of food. There was slavery. There was oppression. There was misery. There was cries of God, deliver us. But there's something about worry. There's something about worry that makes the past look so much more appealing than moving forward. It's weird. The Bible condemns worry. It says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Hey, don't worry about the thing. You didn't know that song was biblical, did you? He said, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what to eat. Don't worry about what to drink. Don't worry about what to wear. Life is more than eating, drinking, and what you're going to wear. You ever notice that the Bible's a little insensitive sometimes? Like, it's great to say, hey, don't worry about what to eat, don't worry about what to drink, don't worry about what to wear, but, but the reality is there are some people that do not know what they are going to eat today. There are some people that do not know where they're going to get clean water today. There are some people that do not have warm clothes to put on, so it sounds good in church. Don't worry about what to eat, what to drink, or what to wear, but the reality is there are some people where what to eat, what to drink, what to wear is a worry, and maybe that's not your worry. Maybe your worry is health. Maybe your worry is your marriage. Maybe your worry is the, the, the security of your job. The, the reality is there are some real worries in our life. And, and there's always this tension between what the Bible says to do and what we actually experience in life. And the Bible's, and, and if I don't force you, you will shout amen to a Bible verse that you have no intention of living out in your actual life. Especially if I do it like a preacher and I choke up on the mic and I say, God's word says, don't you dare worry. Like, I'm not going to worry. Oh, I'm not going to worry. Oh, I'm not going to worry. Come on now. And then you get an email Sunday evening from your boss saying, hey, when you get into the office tomorrow, meet me in my office. Message gone. Verse gone. Shout. Gone. Because the reality is there are worrisome things 
in life. And as I read scripture where it says, do not worry about anything in my life, and then I look at my life that is full of things that are to worry about, it's difficult to make this connection between one and the other. Can I tell you what religion is? Religion is when my faith sits in a building on Sunday but has no connection to my reality on Monday. And one of the most dangerous things is when you sit in a building and you receive truth that you have no intention of connecting to the reality of your life because if you're not careful, it, it, it's like if you go to the doctor and they, they give you antibiotics or whatever they may be, say, hey, we need you to take this antibiotic for seven days. Now, after three days, whatever it's for is going to clear up. When it clears up, make sure you don't stop taking it. Take it for the entire seven days. Otherwise, your, Bible will, your body will become numb. And this antibiotic will not work next time you need it. It's the same thing with the word of God. When I receive the word of God and I don't apply the word of God, I become numb to the word of God. And I begin to see it as just these good ideas that don't apply to anything in my life. And when I need it the most, it does not have the effect that it was meant to have. Somebody say, take a second glance. Trust me, if there's something in scripture that seems too difficult to live, you're reading it wrong. One of the things that we do when we see something in scripture that looks difficult, that looks impossible, that looks insensitive, we just brush by it and assume that it is for people who are more godly than we are, more disciplined than we are, more submitted than we are. That's why it's important that we wrestle with scripture. If I don't like it, fight with it. At first glance, it says, hey, do not worry about anything in your life. But when you look at it again, watch this in the New King James Version, it says this, therefore, sorry, the King James Version, it says, therefore, take no thought. Didn't say don't worry. It said don't think about anything, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or where though shall we be clothed? For after all these things do people who do not know God. See, that's what Gentiles mean here. People who don't know God, they're constantly thinking about, what should I eat? What should I drink? What should I wear? Where am I going to work? Who am I going to marry? How, how long is my marriage going to last? Well, they're constantly worried about the things of life. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek, somebody say, first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In our passage, Israel is complaining about having no food. They said, here we are with three million people. We're in the middle of the desert. There's no vegetation. There's not a lot of meat. And even if there is, there's not enough to feed 3,000 people. Watch this. At first glance, their complaint makes sense. At first glance, this is not being a complaining. This is, this is, there's no food. There, there, there's millions of people that need to eat. And there's, if, if you're not going to complain, you should at least pray. God, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm not asking for something different than I have. I've got, no, at first glance, 
their complaint makes sense. At second glance, when you begin to think how they got to their place of complaint, all of a sudden, it doesn't ring as true. Yes, you are in a place where there is no food. But in order to get to a place where there was no food, an entire sea had to be parted for millions of people to walk through on dry ground with your enemy chasing you down. And when the last old lady got out of the Dead Sea, then next thing you know, the Egyptians come rushing through and the hand that held those waters back now came crashing over. And as you learned in Sunday school and you saw them no more. In this scenario, no food is a real complaint. But when I bring in a context, the miracle that I just stepped out of, it seems a little foolish. It seems a little frivolous to complain about this problem after seeing him fix that problem. At first glance, having no food for three million people seems like a valid complaint. But then when you put into context that at the moment they were complaining, there was a pillar that stretched from heaven to earth that was a cloud that the presence of God resided within. And the second the sun set, that cloud turned to a pillar of fire representing Emmanuel, God with us. I will never leave you nor forsake. It would make sense to complain about no food if it was the only encounter of their life. But when I put into context all that God had done for me up until this moment, even though cancer is a real worry, on second glance, is it still a valid word? I don't have a lot of time to preach, but I had three weeks to prepare. So I got a whole lot more time than I got clock. I began to think at this moment they, they were facing starvation. How many miracles had they seen up to this moment? It wasn't just a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It wasn't just the Red Sea that parted that they walked through. on. But before any of that happened, God performed 10 specific plagues in Egypt to buy their freedom. Y'all got time? First plague, he turned the Nile to blood. Why? Because one of the greatest gods that the Egyptians worshipped was a god named Happy, who was the god, the crocodile god of the river. He said, your river, your god is turned to blood. The second plague is frogs. That's got to be the worst one. Like everywhere you turn, it says buckets and buckets and buckets of frogs. They, they weren't just frogs because God liked frogs. They were frogs because the Egyptian god Heket, the god of fertility, had a frog head. And he said, you want to honor the word of a god that is not the true god? Well, you're going to get so much of that god, you're going to want to throw up. <laughs> then he sent lice. Aaron struck his staff in the sand, and the sand turned to lice. Why? Because Geb, Geb was the god of the harvest, the god of the dirt, the god of the earth. Then there were flies, then there was cows, then there were ashes that turned to boils, then there was fire that hailed down like rain, then there was locusts from the sky, then for three days darkness fell. God is a 
gangster. He blots out the sun for three days, but only over the Egyptian cities. Could you imagine what it was like being Egyptian? It's dark for three days. And you're looking over there at Goshen where the people of God are. And for some reason, their lights aren't working. The sun is up. And it wasn't just that he wanted to blot out the sun because he was bored. It's because the most second worship God in Egypt was raw. God knocked off the top 10. And Israel sat and watched everything that the nation that they were in had exalted above God. God said, took him out, took him out, took her out, took her little cow head out, took her little crocodile tail out. I mean, and then the last one, the firstborn of Pharaoh died. Because in Egypt, they believed that the greatest God was Pharaoh. And God says, the next God, he ain't going to make it. Those were the circumstances in which their deliverance came. And now that they had come to a place of worry, they had completely forgotten how great their God was, how majestic. There is something about worry that will cause amnesia of the greatness of God. Write this down, write this down, write this down. Don't trust your first thought. Whatever you do, do not trust your first thought. The human brain is probably the most magnificent organ ever created by God. When you think about the human brain, think about a central computer, a central processing system in your body. All of your five senses, your ear, your taste, your smell, your touch, your sight, are constantly collecting information. Every nano, even as you're sitting here, you're, you're saying, oh my gosh, why won't they turn the heat on? It's a little bit cold in here. Well, we were taught that the colder the room, the more you pay attention to the message. That's why it's cold. But anyway... <laughs> You're, you're, you're feeling, the, the, you're, you're, you're listening, you're, you're, you're smelling, you're, you're, you're tasting your bad breath because you didn't brush your teeth this morning. All day long, your, your senses are gathering information and sending that information to your brain. Watch this. Your brain receives 11 million bits of information per second. That's a lot of information. You wonder why you're so fatigued at the end of the day. Because you've been processing billions and billions and billions of bits of information all day long. And what happens is your five senses, they gather this information. They bring it to your brain, your, your central processing system. And here's where it gets biblical. And your brain in a nanosecond takes that information and filters it through past experiences. And based on the past experiences, your brain makes a quick calculation. Last time you heard this sound, this is what happened. So chances are, if you're hearing that sound again, this is about to happen. And then sends a message to your body. Here's how you should respond based on the information that you receive. That's why if we were to play a dog barking through the speakers right now. <laughs> Somebody say triggered. <laughs> a couple of y'all. 
You're looking for an exit. You're looking for somebody that you can run faster than. Because last time you heard that sound, you saw that thing chase somebody, and your brain is saying it will. Dogs are fun. I've got two of them. I love my dogs. I mean, not lie to you. I like my dogs. I'm definitely not a dog lover. Get off my couch. It's so amazing how some people are completely terrified of dogs. Uh, my 18-month-old uh, Jade girl, she'll go up and smack the dog, pull the dog's tail, pull his ears, punch the dog in the face. And I'm just like, I would bite you if I was a dog. Like, chill out, bro. And it's all based on my past experience and the information processing and telling me how to respond. Here's what worry is. Worry is when my first thought is natural, not spiritual. Worry is when I take in information, I process that information through my life experiences or through other people's life experiences. And because I saw it not go well for me or them back then, I instantly process this is not going to turn out in my favor. And watch this, decisions made after worry destroy your life more than the problem you're worried about. Let me say that again. Decisions made after worry destroy your life more than the situation you're worried about. So Abraham looked at his life and he said, I'm too old to have kids. I'm worried that God's promise will never come to pass. So he and his wife made a decision that he would have an affair. Boy, wrap your mind around that one. Why do you bother to watch soap operas? Just read the Bible. It's... And here he goes and has an affair with Hagar. Is it an affair? I don't know what you call that. But anyway, steps outside of the will of God, has Ishmael. And now, thousands of years later, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are at war today in the Middle East because one person got worried and made a bad decision. Think about Jacob, that God said, you will rule over your brother and be the leader in your family from birth. But because Jacob got to a certain age and God had not yet fulfilled his promise, Jacob said, maybe God has forgotten about me. I need to take matters into my own hand. Lies to his father, lies to his brother, creates a family rift for life because of his response to worry. And here is Israel. Saying, maybe I should go back to that old boyfriend. I mean, oh, back to. Sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. It's, I haven't preached in three weeks, y'all. It's, it's, it's. Maybe I should take what I prayed back into my control because God's not moving fast enough. Maybe I should go back to that old job because this entrepreneurship game ain't where it's at. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should go back to what I prayed that God would take me out of because what he promised me isn't happening as fast as I thought, wish, or wanted it to happen. And what in front of me looks like it's going to take me out. And the issue is you're processing the wrong information. The first information will always be the wrong information because the first information is the natural information. That's why it's so easy for the enemy to manipulate you. Because all he's got to do is give you facts that your worst nightmare will come to pass. And you'll take care of the rest. 
Think about Jacob. They came to him with Joseph's coat, dipped in blood, ripped apart. Is this your son's coat? And his brain processed the rest. Surely a wild animal has killed my son, ripped him apart, and left him dead in the streets. I will die in sorrow, is what Jacob said. All off of first information that was not true. That's why the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Can, can I give you a little bit of maturity in this limitless season of our church? This is the time for the believer to take thoughts captive. Not just allow any thought to run where it wants to go in your mind, but to apprehend any thought that raises up against the thought that God has for you. And just in case you don't know the thought that God has for you, here's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts to prosper you and not to harm you, thoughts to give you hope and a future. So guess what? Any thought that is not hope is a thought that needs to to be apprehended. Every thought that is not a thought of a future is a thought that needs to be apprehended. Any thought that is not a thought that God is with me and he's going to work this thing out for my good, it must be apprehended. Some of y'all get a fly in your car while you're driving. And in my opinion, you are attempting to total a $10,000 car to kill a worthless fly. We need to be that aggressive about apprehending the thoughts. Here's what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I wasn't going to read it, so I didn't put it in my notes, but I got to read it because I'm just kind of feeling like I ain't preached in three weeks Psalm 136, after Israel got over forgetting what God had done for them, they said, hey, we need to write this down somewhere. We need to memorize this. And next time we get to a place of worry, we just need to recite all the good things that God has done for us. And Psalm 136, verse 10, it says this, to him, our God, who struck Egypt in their firstborn, and then the whole congregation would scream, his mercies endure forever. And they said, he brought us out, Israel, from among them, and everybody would scream, his mercies endures forever. Then they would say with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, and then they would scream, his mercies endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, and then they would scream, his mercies endures forever. When you start to worry, you need to get yourself in your car or in your closet and say to the God that saved me and redeemed me, his mercies endures forever. 
forever to the God that broke addiction off of my life. His mercies endures forever to the God that saved my loved ones, that healed my body, that kept me in my mind. His mercies endures forever to the God when I did not have enough. He provided where there was no provision. His mercies endures forever. You've got to get in the practice of reminding yourself of the resume of God. He has never failed me. He has never forsaken me. He's never left me. He has never not done a miracle in my... Somebody shout his mercies in... Sit down. Do you really think he would perform 10 plagues, part a Red Sea, show up physically in fire just to starve you in the wilderness? Do you really think he would rescue you from Memphis, Tennessee, bring you back into your right mind, heal you of cancer, only for you to be unemployed for the rest of your life? He did not bring you this far to leave you. But if you allow your first thought to be your controlling thought, worry will dominate your life. Second thought is this, faith must become my first. I've got to develop myself to a place where faith is my first thought, not my second thought. Can I, can I, can I, I would almost jump down here, but I won't. Yes, I will. Cameraman, I'm going. <laughs> Let me just come down here with you for a because I'm going to tell you as your pastor, I am still in a place where worry is my first thought. When God says do, I grab calculator. <laughs> do I carry the two? <laughs> come on now. And we've got to get to a place where worry is no longer our first thought. But God, where are you and what are you up to? One, one of the things that I like about my preaching. <laughs> that's why I don't need no amens. I'll be amening myself. Is my preaching will not allow you to remain religious. It will force you to take God's word and insert it into your life. One of the ways that I do this is by asking God questions that other people won't ask him. God, why do you allow worrisome situations in life? Why put me in a situation to worry in the first place? Because your word says that your eyes are on the sparrow. Your word says that you clothe the lilies. Your word says that you feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. God, if you can feed them, why won't you feed me? God, if you can clothe them, why won't you clothe me? God, if you're able to know the answer to my prayer before I even pray it, why allow me to be in a place of lack in the first place? Why set me up like that? Well, he answered in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He said, so I humbled you. This, this, this is a mess with your theology. I allowed you to be single. I allowed your marriage to go through a difficult season. I allowed you to be unemployed. I allowed you to hunger. 
and then I fed you. Not the government. I fed you. Not your degree, not your sorority, not your fraternity, not your mama's connection. I fed you. With manna, watch the shot at your daddy, which you did not know, nor did your father know. God said, I'll put you in a situation where your family can't even get you out. Why? That he may know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth. God, why would you put me in a position where I lack? I rewrote that verse in the New International Stephen Version. Here's what it said. So God removed my self-reliance. God said, I will intentionally take you to a place in life where you can't get yourself out. I will allow you to lack. And then I will perform a miracle so your faith could be anchored in my promises instead of in your predicament. If there is ever lack in your life, if there's ever anything in your life to worry about, you've got to understand God allowed it. He may not have caused it, but he allowed it. And if he allowed it, it's because he's trying to teach you something. He's trying to develop something in you. He's putting some pressure on you because your faith needs to be built up. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And I I know this is King James Sunday. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God says, I need your life to prove that I'm good, that I'm great, that I'm faithful, that I do not abandon, that I heal, that I rescue, that I take care of those who are. I heard a phenomenal message on Friday and I can't take credit for this analogy, but as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, that's stolen. I'm preaching that. This pastor said, in order for you to worry, you first have to claim ownership. said, think about it. You've never worried about something that you did not own. Have you ever worried about how your neighbor's going to pay their mortgage? You ever stayed up at night and wondered, man, the first is coming. I wonder if they're going to be able to pay their rent. You ever drove by their house and seen smoke coming out of the stack and saying, oh, they're burning their heat a lot. I don't know if they're going to be able to hit their BGE bill this month. Never has it ever crossed your mind how they're going to pay their more. Why? Because it's not your problem. Come on now. Let their stuff get thrown on the front lawn. You're heartbroken. You feel for them. But you ain't worried. (laughs) It's a little insensitive, but... Maybe you check your app to make sure that yours went through. (laughs) But other than that, which means in order to worry, there must be ownership. And anything I worry about means that I think I own it. So when I worry about my kids, I think they're mine and not God's. 
And when I worry about my health, I think this body belongs to me and not to God. And when I worry about my marriage, I think this is my marriage instead of his example of the Father's love for the church here on earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says this, your own body does not belong to you, for God has bought you with a great price. So use every part of your body to give glory back to God because he owns you. This ain't biblical, but it's good preaching. God has never missed a payment in his life. Nothing God has ever owned has gone into foreclosure. He has never had anything he's owned repossessed, and it won't start. Somebody say, I belong to God. All right, I'm out of time, even though I'm not done. Pray, and I'm going to still preach. Write this down. Developed faith produces. I love God's word. So, God brings them into the world. Three million people. And he intentionally puts them in a place where there's no food. Why? Because he's trying to build their faith. Come on, somebody preach with me. Somebody say, he's not trying to kill me. He's trying to build my faith. Come on, encourage yourself in the Lord. Say, he's not trying to kill me. He's, he's trying to build my faith. Tell the truth. You ever feel like God's trying to kill you sometimes? Yeah, you ever pray some prayers like, what's up with this? For real, dude? Like, I ain't even living ratchet. Like, you ever pray prayers like, God, you expect me to go through all of this and stay saved and not sin? I mean, I love you, but this is a, somebody say it with me. He's not trying to kill me. He's trying to build my faith. So he takes 3 million people, put them in the wilderness where there's no food. They cry out, God, you're going to kill us. He said, no, I'm going to feed you. Tomorrow morning, there's going to be man in the day and quail at night. Hold on. It's a test. Only take enough for today. Don't take two days worth. Take one day's worth. And trust that the God who did a miracle today is the God that's going to do a miracle tomorrow. Guess what they did? They gathered up two days worth just in case God lied. The God, 10 plagues God, Red Sea God, Pillar God, now manna and quail God. But he could lie. He could change up all of a sudden. And I'm not going to get caught if God changes. So when he does a miracle for me, I'm a hoard. The miracle to myself. Because I don't know if he's going to bring another miracle in my life. That's why when he said, when you learn how to pray, this is how you pray. Give us this day our daily. So they failed the first test. You know what happened? The bread that they kept for the next day had maggots in it. And he said, I told you. One day. Then they get to Friday. And he says, gather two days. Because you're not to work seven days a week. You're to work six days a week. And if you work six days a week, I will take what you gather on the sixth and make it stretch over two days. Last time I gathered two days worth of food, it had maggots in it. God is telling me now to gather two days worth of food. But what if it has maggots again? So you know what these losers did? They gathered two days worth of food. But they woke up Saturday morning and went out looking for manna and quail. And there was none. God said, I told you. What, what he was building. If I had to, why would he do that? 
Because God says, I want to take you to a land where there is no lack. I want to take you to a place where you don't need for anything. But to get to that place, you need faith. And faith is only built in a place where there is lack. So I'm going to create lack to take you into a place where there is no lack. And you're... Some may say it's limitless season. So every year, as long as I've been a pastor, we've ended the year with an offering. And we've said three things. Pray to God and ask him what he would have you give. Hear from him and obey. This year is particularly important because as we're launching the Charlotte campus and Charlotte campus and, and building our broadcast location and all this, I truly believe that this is the first domino that will birth revival through Union Church in this region for decades. I think this is the most important offering Union Church has ever experienced. We kicked this off in May, and the church then committed $10.9 million towards our offering. Somebody say amen. We have 4.1 to go. We've got to hit that $15 million mark. And that's why we're saying, hey, next Sunday is Limitless Sunday where, hey, if you've already made a commitment, come next Sunday with a large step towards that commitment. If you're new to Union Church, pray, hear from God what he would have you do over the next three years. Make your commitment. Somebody say amen. amen. Can I tell you when you know it's from God? When the number he tells you will cause you to lack. It's real quiet up in here, Columbia, but I'm sure y'all shouting over there. Why? Because if it doesn't cause me to lack, it doesn't require any faith. I'm not saying I can't pay my mortgage, can't pay my rent, I'm going to get my car repossessed because I gave to the church. That ain't God. But I am saying I can't go on the vacation that I wanted to go on. I'm going to have to push that renovation back. So you know me and my wife gave the proceeds of the, of, of the book to the church, six figures. It was crazy. And, you know, that launch Sunday when the book came out, everybody was screaming and shouting. I was crying on the inside, y'all. Because what y'all don't know is a check hit the church's account on launch Sunday, and I was just like. His mercies endures forever. If you don't feel it, it ain't faith. I heard an amazing story of somebody in our dream team. A lady wrote in. She said, me and my husband, we prayed and we gave in our May, uh, made a commitment in the May Limitless offering. And she said the number was so big, it made her heart stop. We were scared. But we knew it was God and we were excited to make that commitment. And she said, just as life happens, as soon as we made that commitment, life hit. She said, we had one expensive uh, renovation on the house and one expensive repair and another. And it's like everything just started coming in. And she said, if, there, if the, the renovations on the house wasn't bad enough, then I got furloughed from my job. One of the indications that is the enemy is when the attack is coming from different directions. Because the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a, he's trying to overwhelm your faith and push you back into worry. And she said, even though it was overwhelming, we did not back off. We didn't change our commitment. We said, God said it. And we had a peace that he was going to work it out. I read this. I was running around my office. She said, well, we didn't back off. I got a new job that I start tomorrow. Watch this. And she said, the income that I'm making from my new job is exponentially higher from the income that I made at the job that furloughed me. 
don't shout yet. That ain't a miracle. Are you ready for the miracle? She said, the difference between my old salary and my new salary to the dollar is the exact amount that we committed in our limitless. His mercies endure it. Proverbs 11.25 says this, is it possible to give away and become richer? It is also possible to hold on too tightly and lose everything. Yes, the liberal man shall be rich. By watering others, he waters. As we step into this offering season, here's the question. Am I going to make decisions based on my first thought? How my brain filters the economy and inflation and recession and all these dumb words that don't apply to Christians but are being thrown out on every news station? Or am I going to say, he saved me? He delivered me. He redeemed me. He brought me to places that I never, he sat me before people that I never, his mercies endures forever. If we were a stand up at the end of the message, let's do that. Can you stand? Can you stand? Because if I make you stand, it'll make me feel like I'm finished. Then I give you one more and then we could pray and then I'll figure out how to get you to sit down. There's this awkward passage in scripture in 1 Kings 17 when there was a famine in the land and God sent Elijah to a widow. And he said, hey, can I have a piece of bread? The widow said, I have nothing but a little bit of flour. It's all I've got left. The prophet didn't want to, but under the unction of the Holy Spirit, he said, okay, make me some cake first and then make some for you and your son. She was a widow. It was only enough flour for her to eat. He said, make three cakes out of one that's not enough to make for one. I feel like she was like, did you not hear me? I feel like he said, I hate asking, but trust me. So it says she made the cake for the prophet. And then as she did that, the flour in the bowl multiplied. And there was enough to feed her and the prophet for the entire famine. The prophet doesn't represent Stephen. The prophet represents God's house. If I make my income, part of the purpose of my income is to advance the kingdom of God. He will make sure I will never not have enough. Somebody say, but that ain't the miracle. Fast forward two more paragraphs. Her son died. Somebody say, death is final. It is unless you know God. And could you imagine her looking at this dead boy, no husband, she is on her own. Every sense in her body says, scream, wail, give up hope. Your boy is dead. This is the end of the story. But then she took a second look and said, I remember a miracle in my life just a few years ago when I had not enough food and I trusted God and he multiplied what I did not have. I wonder if the same God who multiplies flower is the same God that breathes life back into dead lungs. Here's what she did not know, that when God said, give me your last flower, he was building her faith muscle for a time in the future that she would need it and didn't even know that she would need it. Every time we do an offering, we say connect a miracle to it, not because it's about them, but because God is building your faith. 
And there's a time in your life where you will need that faith. And it'll be too late to build it. And if you're not able to say, I remember when I trusted God and he did not fail me. The same God then. Father God, we're grateful. We're thankful, God, that you are faithful. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. The one that has never left us nor forsaken us. God, I pray for every single person in the sound of my voice, God, that they would know like they've never known before that you are with them. You haven't left them. You haven't abandoned them. And God, whatever worry they're facing is because you're building something in their life. Just where you are, can you pray this prayer? Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Just give God a moment to make this time and make this message personal to you. I'm preaching to you and surrendering my worries at the same time. Can't let you leave, though, before I pray for those of you that if you'd be honest, you've never humbled yourself before the Lord. You are what the Bible would call self-reliant, not God-reliant. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in church, or maybe church is the first, this is the first experience like this for you before. But if you were to be honest, you may believe in God, but you don't belong to God. You've never made him the center of your existence. You've never surrendered all that you have to him. That is where life begins, and you sense him tugging on your heart in this moment. You say, Pastor, that's me. I need to put my faith, my hope, my trust in Jesus. If that's you right where you're standing, pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for seeing me, for loving me, for dying on the cross. It was your blood that purchased my freedom. It was your blood that purchased my forgiveness. Right now, I surrender. I give you all of me. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on, can you take about 30 seconds? Can you celebrate God for every single person?